Acts 23, 1 through 11. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party, Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify also in Rome. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to hear these words proclaimed once again, that have been proclaimed over and over again, not just in the past 2,000 years, but since you have spoken to your people, you have proclaimed the truth about who you are and you are teaching us each day. We pray that you would pour out your spirit this morning, that we would understand these words rightly, and that we would be affected by them, that this planting of your word in our ears and in our mind would also plant into our hearts, that you would write your law upon our hearts, and that our response would be fruitful and faithful. For the glory of your Son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, I'm going to start with a quiz this morning and see if anyone can tell me. Um, prefer maybe if some of the children would answer this, if anyone would know who said this quote. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, and to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Can any children say who, who said that quote? Nope. Nope. Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Jim, you need to get that. Your middle name is Luther. You need to, you need to memorize all of those quotes that he had. <laughs> no, it was Martin Luther. I thought I would throw that quote in there, particularly... Because it is October, and of course in October, uh, Martin Luther's name comes up quite often. Um, but this was not what was actually uh, quoted during the initiation of the Reformation, but further along four years after the beginning when he uh, nailed on the 95 Theses on the, on, on the door um, in, in Wittenberg. This was actually quoted at Worms um, when he was at the Diet of Worms when he was captured, and he was also um, being tried, and he stood there, and he mentioned, and it's a, probably one of his most famous quotes that he's ever had, concerning how he was bound by the scriptures, 
with his conscience. That unless he is convinced by Scripture and plain reason, his conscience is captive to the Word of God. And it would be my contention that he learned that a lot from Paul. And I would say that he's even thinking of this particular passage. As we have Paul here in the beginning of this con- of this um, particular narrative of verse 1 of 23, where Paul is speaking to the Jews, and he says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And that doesn't sound too um, controversial, but the high priest Ananias commanded to those who were standing next to Paul, and he had the authority, at least he was seen to have the authority and the respect, that they responded to his instruction to strike him particularly on the mouth. So it was what he said that actually caused this reaction in Ananias. Paul was standing before them, one, that he called them brothers. And you need to notice that in this particular section of the, of the scriptures, he is constantly referring to his hearers as brothers, because he is talking to the Jews. Now, in today's age, that if this would happen, probably from some minister, that they, they would call people brothers who are not those who adhered perfectly to the doctrines in which they would hold, they would be probably criticized on, on social media and say, this is horrible. But this is, Paul was looking at these people as their heritage and his connection to them, that he, he as he mentioned in the last chapter, he was just like them before he was introduced to Jesus Christ. He was still connected to them in that way. He came to Jerusalem to, pre- to introduce, to present, and to proclaim Jesus Christ to those that he considered as his heritage brothers, and at one time in their even belief, as these are the ones that were given the law and the prophets and should be the ones that are not only anticipating the Messiah, but should recognize the Messiah once the Messiah is introduced to them. But he knew not only by their former reaction, but also by the proclamation that was given to him, that they would likely reject him. So he knew that even by saying these things, even though he postured himself with great humility to bring about the gospel to these brothers of his, he knew that the response that would come would be very much like what he had received when Ananias told them to strike him on the mouth. And it seems that it would probably have been a pretty hard strike. It seems Paul is being reactionary to the fact, but he's not just being reactionary, I think, to the pain. But there is something here, an insight that Paul has about this particular person. Even though he says later on that he does not recognize him to be the high priest, he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Now, Paul was saying that, one, when he was mentioning that he was there in good conscience, that he has lived up to his day, that everything that he was doing was in contrary to the accusations given to him, that he had in his conscience that he had not done anything that would have required him to be receiving the punishment for the accusations placed upon him. And again, just to remind you that those three particular things that they were accusing him of is that he was speaking against the people of God, speaking against the pip, the place of God, the temple of God, and the law of God. And Paul had been contending that he was not there to speak against these things, but to show how these things were centered in Jesus Christ. And so he was proclaiming in the very beginning, one, that he is connected to them, but that his conscience was bound to the very things that they said they want to see him have respect for, that he was actually arguing that he had greater respect for these things because of his proclamation and his submission to Jesus Christ. Now, there, it, this is a, a confusing passage because you can first start thinking, a lot of people can easily start running off into a direction saying, well, he was a persecutor of the Christians. How can he say in good, that he's been in good conscience all of his life? The best that we can understand that he is speaking about his defense before them. He's not saying that it was okay for him to be persecuting Christians. So he's not saying that that was the good thing, but he was saying in light of what they were accusing him of, 
that he had in his conscience that he had not done anything that deserved that kind of judgment. Secondly, it's a little confusing in the dialogue that after he says what he is saying to Ananias, which does occur, because at the time when the Romans were taking over Israel in the war with Israel, this is right before 70 AD, there was a revolt amongst the Jews because of this particular high priest um, alliances with the Romans. They went from respecting him highly to hating him, and they killed him. He was assassinated. And so he was struck down. So there is a level of prophecy here and promise here. But Paul says right after that, after someone standing next to him says, would you revile God's high priest? It seems like Paul takes a quick different direction. And he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, here it's confusing because it says that even in his statement, he says, one, he says that you are sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. He, uh, he recognized that this person somehow was making a judgment and that he had some kind of authority. And so that creates a little bit of confusion as we try to dissect how can he say that he didn't know. Well, there's a lot of different theories about what Paul was doing there. Was this being sarcastic that he didn't know? Was because Ananias was such an evil person? And he was a very evil person. Even other historians say that this particular high priest was a very violent man, very temperamental man, and it says that his father was very violent and temperamental. He was known by historians, not recorded in the scriptures, to be a violent man, and it seems to be very parallel that it didn't take but one phrase out of Paul's mouth that he was ready to strike him in the face. And so it's understandable that it might be somewhat sarcastic, but the general consensus is, is that we can take it for face value for what it is, that even though Paul said what he said, for whatever reason, he seems to have recognized some kind of level of authority in there, that he did not recognize him as a high priest. And I think we should merge all of this together to understand that this is all kind of wrapped up in this endeavor by Paul to have a faithful conscience as he is about the proclamation of the gospel. If you remember in the introduction a couple of Sundays ago of this remaining section of the book of Acts, I mentioned that there are particular themes that are going to be repeated throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And one was the promise of suffering. Two, that Paul was focused on the endeavor of adhering to the law in the proclamation of the gospel. So we had law and proclamation being the primary focus that Paul was going to be referring to the law and adhering to the law as he was about the work of the proclaiming of the gospel. And that the reaction would be lies and confusion. And we see it over and over again. Paul is being falsely accused not to rightly hold up a respect of God's people, of God's law, and God's temple. And Paul, we see particularly in the next chapter, in next Sunday's chapter, that he makes this case even more thorough. And so when we look at this and we look at the word conscience and we think about what is Paul thinking, we can take it at face value that Paul is trying really hard to be faithful to how he presents himself before those whom he is anticipating are going to kill him violently. I don't know if any of you all have ever been in that kind of situation where you have both the calling of presenting the gospel and the immediate anticipation that they're going to kill you. I mean, even now think about Steve, you know, going up to the governor. I'm sure that he anticipated that the governor was going to respond to whatever you said to him, whatever secret thing you told him, in a very positive way. That they weren't going, he wasn't going to give a negative reaction. And we heard a negative reaction there at that particular speech that we heard on Friday. There was someone speaking out in a very kind of, kind of abrupt way. But we didn't anticipate that from them. And so he, I'm sure Steve felt welcome to say whatever he said to the governor. This was not a situation like that at all. Paul was anticipating something like getting punched in the face. 
and eventually dying. But in that endeavor, as we see in the scripture that I mentioned last week, that he sought to go about this to see if he could win some, but at the same time do so with self-control. He was trying to control his emotion and his focus. And it seems like an odd kind of response that he went from what seems to be reactionary by actually proclaiming a curse that does get fulfilled by the hand of God, but then acknowledging that he must say adhere to the law, which that passage comes out of Deuteronomy, that he should not speak against the ruler of the people. And this is a difficult thing. I think it's a very difficult thing today for modern evangelicals to know how to rightly hold to speaking truth, but at the same time recognizing the covenantal barriers and restrictions and requirements of how we go about presenting that. And I think we should really hone in and think about that in light of this passage of how is Paul approaching this? How, what is, what is um, in Paul's mind? What is he trying to do? And what is the fruitfulness of it? Well, one of the things I think that we can see here is by from Paul's... I want to jump ahead just a little bit and tap into Acts 24 because I think it helps us understand more clearly what is in the mind of Paul. So if you could flip over to Acts 24... In that verses 10 through 16, we see when he is standing before Felix, the governor Felix, that he is explaining in, in, in maybe a little more detail his defense. He says, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have judged over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Jesus Christ says that the whole law can be summarized into loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is focusing on the law as he is focusing on the gospel, what he has been given by Christ, the law of Christ, in proclaiming that gospel. He's not just saying, you know what, I just want to go out there and I just want to encourage people to say, you know, God loves you and he can help you with your problems and he can get you out of your rut and he just loves you so much that he's just waiting that if he could just get you to just come to him. No, he's trying to go biblically to presenting the power and the righteousness of this God and at the same time highlighting how Jesus Christ is the the fullness of that righteousness, and takes our just punishment of wrath so that we may have salvation. And he's presenting the fullness of the scripture by doing so. And so we too, as we consider the gospel, it should shape, this particular passage should do a lot to shape that Paul is thinking about the fullness of the revelation of God when he is thinking about the presentation of the gospel of God, they cannot be separated. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we see how Peter speaks about this good conscience. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter, too, speaks about this proclamation of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ needs to be tightly adhered to how we go about doing it. 
that when we're doing it, we don't go against the law of Christ. We do not go against the law of God and how we present it. We must continue to have that mindfully upon us as we go about presenting the gospel. Now, this is the true for every covenantal relationship that we have, whether it's with your husband and wife or your children, brothers and sisters at work. And we see that Paul hashes this out as in every one of his epistles, it seems to flow into that direction of how we covenantally highlight the reality of Christ's kingdom to people. It's not separated because our covenant with God is interwoven with our covenant with one another. We see Paul stating that, that he takes pains to have a clear conscience toward both what God has told him to proclaim and how he loves and presents it to mankind. He cannot separate these things. Peter, again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then, assumingly, Paul, in, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, 18, it says, Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. They tightly tie this how they present themselves and live their lives and react to people. Even though in these particular situations, I don't know any of us that would take very kindly to getting punched in the face. And Paul, you've got to give him a little bit of grace here that he was like, you know, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. But even in that, does anybody know where he may be getting that kind of terminology in calling the high priest a whitewashed wall? Where he might have learned that? Jesus didn't just say that about your tins that are whitewashed on the outside, but on the inside are nasty. The very proclamation of Jesus Christ. In Matthew, he says that very thing. He says, you whitewash tombs, you're clean on the outside, but inside you're full of death. He uses the same terminology, and he's saying, woe to the Pharisees. Now, I think we have to be careful here, because Paul, I mean, Jesus is going through, and he's saying, woe, 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 and Jesus is Jesus. But in the beginning of that particular passage, when he is doing the seven woes to, I think it's seven, Woes to the Pharisees. He begins by telling the disciples, and it's, a very, it's an easy thing for us to miss out on. He says, to do what they say and to take note of what they are saying, but don't do what they do. Because they are actually supposed to be proclaiming the law of God. And if they are proclaiming the law of God, and God has given them the authority, and we even recognize here that Paul recognizes the authority of Ananias, and it's almost in an apologetic tone saying, I didn't know that because I must adhere to the law of God by not speaking evil. And it's also translated not to have a curse against a ruler of your people. That he is, Jesus initiates those woes by telling the disciples to take note to stick to the law of God. He doesn't say, you know, if they don't practice what they preach, then you don't have to listen to anything that they have to say. He actually highlights. I was doing all that by memory, and I realized I do have the passages here. He says in Matthew 23, 27, 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's the fact that they are not adhering to the law that they get that particular woe. So why would we want to be like the Pharisees by presenting the gospel without the full mindfulness, taking great pains to do so by adhering to the law? This is crucial. Most of the time when you hear people talking about training for evangelism, it's all about how the law was passed and how it's all gone. You don't probably hear a lot of maybe conferences on evangelism where it's like, you know what, we're going to take a theonomic approach to understanding this, the law of God as we go about 
the presentation of the gospel. But that's what Paul did. And it is our first recording and example of the acts of the early church, the acts of the apostles, the acts of the Holy Spirit working through the church in the proclamation of the gospel. But now quoting what I already mentioned, Matthew 23, 2, Jesus initiates and says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They have that authority. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. And brothers and sisters, you should apply that to me sometimes. Now, hopefully I'm not in the same category of woe as the Pharisees, but I would probably receive at least a percentage of that own woe to me that needs to continue to be before me. That if you see that I am presenting the word to you, take note of that. But be very careful to remember Jesus' words that when you see me fail, or even if I sin against one of you all, don't disregard the things that have been preached that come from the word of God. It is the authority of God. I pray that I will not be one that would cause a stumbling block to you because of my failures in life. That you would disregard these words. And so here Jesus is, before he gets ready to preach his sermon against the Pharisees, he's saying, you still need to do what they tell you to do. They still have authority. And if they're preaching the word, you need to listen to the word. Continue to adhere to that. Do not use it as an excuse to neglect the word. There's so many people now who are, I got the terminology, where they're, they're un, becoming unconverted and they're blaming their experiences to, to, to reject the fullness of the gospel, to reject the fullness of God's Bible. And they're blaming other people as victims. And in some level, they are telling the truth because there are areas where we do see clearly in the scriptures where there is the responsibilities for leaders to be teaching them. But if they're actually trying to proclaim, because a lot of people say, well, Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus this and Jesus that. Jesus would say, stick to the word of God. Stick to the law of God. And in fact, continue to stick to respecting your authorities. Be careful how you speak. Exodus says, do not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. It's connecting that pain that Paul is speaking of, that he is not going to revile God by cursing someone who is in authority. In Ecclesiastes, does anyone know where Ecclesiastes is in the Bible? What kind of, what kind of writing is Ecclesiastes? We don't talk a lot about Ecclesiastes, so that's why I wanted a little teaching moment here. What kind of, what kind of literature is? Ecclesiastes. Wisdom. Where would it be in the... What other books are wisdom literature? Proverbs. So where is Ecclesiastes, you think? Right after Proverbs. And so in the same spirit of Proverbs, it's actually right before the Song of Solomon, and there's debate about who wrote Ecclesiastes. I think it's probably Solomon, but they're not 100% sure. In Ecclesiastes, and get this. Now, just chew on this a little bit, because as I was doing my study, I was kind of like... Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 20, it says, <laughs> Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. That even in our thoughts, that we are to be careful with what we think about authorities. You know, I was having the governor come on Friday, I mean, I'm, I'm torn. You know, there's things that the governor says I cringe at, and there are things I'm very thankful of in light of the contrast of our former governor. And if you get me started on the former governor, it would be very easy for me to, to express some of my thoughts. And here it says that to be careful in your thoughts, not to curse the king. Paul here, he knows Ecclesiastes. He knows Deuteronomy. He knows Exodus. He knows the law. He knows the things that have been taught about how to posture. And he's trying to think on these things. And he tells us in Corinthians that with self-control, as he's trying to win these souls, he's trying to be bound by the law of Christ and how he presents it. And I tell you, there's not a lot of good examples in modern-day evangelicalism how that goes. In fact, we usually 
find ourselves in camps where we just totally neglect the law of God, or we really just are full of breaking the law because of our dishonorable way of presenting to those who disagree with what we believe to be true doctrines. Paul here is walking that line of what Christ has taught him in his word and is teaching us today. I don't think that any of us can come out of this unscathed. I don't know if there is any particular group that does this really well where they are able to present the law and gospel in a faithful way. And I don't think any of us can do it in our own strength. We must be humble before the Lord asking us that he would teach us how to take great pains in presenting the gospel faithfully. We see in the teaching of Romans 13, and we need to remember what kind of authorities they had when Paul wrote to the Romans. They're the most violent men in authority. That we, None of our governors, even with all the abortion that we have, I don't think we've ever seen it in such vivid ways. Maybe if we think about what's going on in the womb, maybe we can see that kind of reality. But when we think about what Nero did, particularly against Christians, and, and I tell you, we may see that more and more as I read reports about what they're using the FBI for anymore. I wouldn't be surprised that we're going in that direction in some way again. But if that does happen, Look at what Paul says here to the Romans who, remember the Nero who stuck Christians up on spears and after dipping them in wax and lighting them up so that they could light the streets with Christian bodies. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will occur, incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. You know, can you imagine some people be like, are you serious? But to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant to your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must act in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Again, there's a lot of different things that Paul may have been thinking of. He may have been thinking about the benevolence of some of the authorities that were actually gracious to him. But he's giving a a blanket instruction to us all. And we know to receive it as a blanket instruction. Now, we know that we need to always obey God's law before obeying man's law. But there is a posture that we go through great pains to do what God has told us to do while respecting our authorities. Paul here is not going to stop proclaiming the gospel because the Jews want him to stop. He's not going to stop when the Romans want him to stop. So he doesn't obey the man's authority in those regards because God's authority trumps man's. But he still takes great pains in adhering with faithfulness. We even, as I quoted as he was talking to Felix, he says, I'm cheerful that I get a chance to present to you my case. I don't think he was just being sarcastic. This is a prayer that we should, and it should be a part of our studies, that we cannot neglect the full counsel of God as we think about evangelism. As we think about the growth of the church, we need to be praying that those who are in the pulpit are adhering to the full counsel of God. Last week we had a visitor who, as a child, was in an orphanage in Kakistan, a Christian orphanage. And there was a Christian ministry that brought him into Alabama. And he was telling me that it was you know, a, a very active ministry. But because of the husband and wife team who started this ministry of the, of the adoption agency, because of their severance in their marriage, because they could not agree, something went really wrong. And from what I can gather from his Explanation without details, it was a scandalous scenario. That ministry just died. And it ended. Something that was a very helpful tool for him because they did not, there was not the adhering to their covenantal connection. A ministry was disabled to help bring this particular child to the gospel. That's why it's important. That's why we read in James 1.27... 
to visit the widow and the orphan in their distress, but to keep oneself unstained by the world. It is crucial that we are looking at the fullness of God's revelation and not just being called up with throwing bits and pieces or we will become more of a stench and shame in that presentation. And people will be deconstructing their faith more and more because there'll be confusion and chaos and lies, which is the response of Satan. In the midst of all of this confusion and after Paul transitions from explaining to them that he did not know that this was a high priest, he perceives that there's some Pharisees there and Sadducees. And it doesn't say what his thinking, what his heart was, if he was trying to mix things up. But he, he, just, he just gets to the point. He says, brothers, third time in this particular section, he says, brothers, I am a Pharisee. I am a son of a Pharisee. It is respect out of the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He's trying to appeal, knowing that there are some Pharisees there. You might say, well, he's trying to pick a fight there. I don't, I don't think so. He's in brothers. I'm, I'm, I'm like you guys. He's like, I'm, my, my main focus here is, you know, this thing that you hold to about spirits and about the resurrection and, and life after death. Because I am, I'm, that's what I'm here about. I'm here to talk about the one who makes all of that possible. But then confusion breaks out, and it becomes violence breaking out. And there is, he does win over at least to the fact that the Pharisee says, we don't see, you know, that's what the guy's talking about. We don't even, we don't have any beef with him. But then there's just confusion so much that he's, he's about to get into a place of violence that they have to go down, that the Romans have to go down and they have to rescue. The tribune thinks he's going to be torn apart. Paul says in Corinthians, it says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say that some how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this is the truth, if you Sadducees are right, and of course you know that they're sad because they, you know, they don't believe in the resurrection, so therefore they're sad, you see. I'm always afraid if we don't keep reminding people of that, they'll, they'll get lost. It's just a, a perfect illustration. There would be no hope for us. The resurrection has to be front and center. The crucifixion has to be front and center. His reign over all things has to be front and center because it's all embodied in Christ. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the tomb, his sitting at the right hand of God the Father, having all things subjected to his authority, must be a part of the fullness of the gospel for us in our proclamation, or we're missing something. And so Paul gets back to the focus as he's trying to present himself, taking great pains and doing faithfulness. He's like, man, I am just here to preach the resurrection. Of Jesus Christ. The next verse in Corinthians that I was just reading, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been raised from the dead. And so he goes back there, and again, all hell breaks loose. And so I'm sure he was just like, man, that was a mess. That, was a, that didn't work very well. <laughs> you know, he goes in, he's, he's trying to work it out. He's trying, he's trying to connect with them. In the middle of that, he gets punched in the face. And then he's like, you know, you're right. I need to you know, make sure that I'm not going against the law and how I'm presenting myself. And then he's, he's looking around. And he's like, you know what? It's, just, it's a resurrection. That's what I'm here. And, he, and, he, and it looks like he's getting some response. And then all of a sudden, it's just, just chaos occurs. And so as he's in the barracks, Jesus shows up. 
And I'm jealous here. Yeah. I'd love to just see Jesus show up in a visible way and just say these words. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What a commendation of being able to, to have that received from the Lord where he's like, you've been testifying about me. You're, you're doing your job. I mean, Paul, I would have been just like, man, that was just a disaster. That was a complete mess. And I'm probably going to die any minute now. It did not go well. That wasn't my best presentation of the gospel. And Jesus shows up at that moment and says, take courage. You have testified about me. You did what you were called to do. And guess what? You're going to go to Rome. And he might be thinking, I don't even know how that's possible. I was talking to someone this week that I work with and it was funny, it was one of those kind of conversations you probably have had them before. I, I, one of my jobs is to um, help set up for meals and functions and got to get the food and drink. And recently somebody was requesting that we have a beer truck there with the food and I was talking about it to my coworker and, and I said, yeah, I was trying to find, you know, who could present that. And then I had to get in, in touch with legal and then when legal shut it all down, <laughs> it's like, no, you can't have alcohol there. And, and, and this person who's an, a new employee, they said, but you're a preacher. <laughs> well, you, you can do that kind of thing. <laughs> and I thought it was funny. Cause, and I'm like, well, you know, I actually, I serve wine every Sunday. And she was like, what? <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, every Sunday I'm in, at the Lord's table, I do this. And, and she's like, well, I, when I was growing up, that was not the way it was. You know, I, in fact, when I was growing up, you, don't, you, you can't even leave church feeling hopeful about yourself. <laughs> like, if you, didn't leave, if you didn't leave church feeling guilty, um, then you didn't go to church. <laughs> I thought that was like, man, that's rough. And she said, I remember the first passage that I ever learned, memorized, was all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I said, well, I'm glad you memorized that passage. I said, you know... Actually, there's a place for both. You want to be encouraged, but you needed you needed to hear that too. You, know, you can't. Those are not. You don't have to separate those. To, 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 in fact, it's necessary that you you have that. We have to acknowledge the law so we can understand the grace that we have received. That it's not all about just some kind of self definition of of what grace is. And that's what we have here in the presentation by, by Paul. We, we see this presentation that he's, he's, he's not trying to separate these things. He can't separate these things. These are not mutually exclusive. And whenever we make them mutually exclusive, we're either going to legalism or we're going to some kind of false grace that's not truly grace. Interestingly enough, I know that some of you may have been watching football Yesterday, and uh, I learned um, that the quarterback for Tennessee, Hendon Hooker, he and his brother Austin, who's also um, a football player in North Carolina, they actually put together a children's book called "The ABCs of Scripture for Athletes." Anybody know about that? Has anybody seen that? It's, it's, it, I was like, wow. Um, they, they grew up in a Christian home. Um, they, they actually lived in, um, I think, in Morristown, Tennessee. They went to First Baptist in Morristown. And um, their mom had, when they would come home from school, they couldn't go do certain things or have certain snacks. Or you know, to get a snack and a sip of Gatorade, they had to memorize certain passages of Scripture. And they had these little flashcards. And so they came up with this book together, as brothers, to, for athletes, for young people, to memorize the scriptures. And interestingly enough, I saw that the very first one, A is for all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the first one for them to memorize. The second one is B. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God goes with you. Deuteronomy 31, 6. And it's interesting. Those are the first two things. And to have those both presented to young people, both of those need to be there. We need to remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And for those who repent and believe, we can be strong. For those who have received the grace of the covenant of God, we can be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God goes with you. The Lord is with us. The Lord can't be with us in our sin. There has to be something. The gospel is right here that there's a tension there. How can God be with us? How can we be courageous if all of sin and fall short of the glory of God? Jesus comes to Paul and says, take courage. Paul's there. Jesus is right there with Paul. He's with him. He's going to be with him. And even though I have a hard time believing it and Satan's going to try to deceive me and and, and the same thing for you, the fact that these words are proclaimed to you today is Jesus telling you to take courage. To take courage that he is with you. And wherever we have faithfully proclaimed his word, and even wherever we have stumbly and weakly proclaimed his word, his word has been proclaimed whenever his word has been proclaimed. And his name has been proclaimed. And he will continue that. Even when things look like everything has fallen apart. When everything looks like it's done and over with, he is going to continue to bring about the fulfillment of his kingdom. Take courage, brothers and sisters. For as you have testified to the facts about Jesus in your home, before one another, in your communities, to one another in this church, to your co-workers, to your friends, so you must continue to testify wherever he's going to take you. I was hoping to be a little further along in my sermon before this, but I do want to read to you the close of this particular chapter because it is the presentation of the promise of what God said he would do. And look at this. In the midst of this drama, keep in mind that he is actually fulfilling the very promise that he gave. Verse 17, it says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Doesn't sound like a good beginning to the fulfillment of what Jesus said. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and says, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we, and we, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. We're not even, he's not even going to make it here. We're going to kill him before he gets here. We're not even going to eat, drink. They're, they're determined. There's 40 of them. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune if we have something to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man and charging him, tell no one you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysus, to the excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him. I brought him down to their council. I found that he, that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once. 
ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against them. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea, delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Who would have thought that this would be the way that Paul would be rescued? Who would have thought that it would be the Romans who brought, did you do the math, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. Those 40 Jews had no chance. God brought in an army of people. Jesus brought in an army of people, people who were not Christians, people who were pagans, practicing pagan, pagan things. But in the providence of the Lord, he used that army army to come in to rescue Paul from a situation that he thought was for sure to end in death and would give him escort north to Caesarea toward Rome. Not only would he make it to Caesarea in time, we know he will make it to Caesar's household. So as we look at this particular passage, we should be taught to just stick to the things in the law of Christ and his gospel. And to have hope and faith. That he will use those things. We cannot. There's no way anybody would have contrived. Like, okay, I think it, you know, Paul wasn't thinking, okay, if I, if I let them know that I'm, I'm a Roman citizen, then maybe and this happens, this happens, maybe I can get a whole army of people to rescue me. Yeah, no way of doing that. There's no way your thoughts, just like we said in the beginning of the, of the worship, his thoughts are way beyond our thoughts. And so don't be afraid. Even now as we come to this table, we look at this table and we go, how can this table bring about the furthering of the gospel? What we have by Jesus' word, it says, as often as you do this, you proclaim my death, my crucifixion, until I return. We are proclaiming his gospel. We have to come here realizing that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no way we can rightly take this table without having that passage or the meaning of that passage on our head. But we are to be encouraged to take strength, to take heart, that he invites us to his table, to take of him. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. His table reigns over all things, and we are granted the inheritance of the king. Take heart. Take courage. He is with us. And his name will be proclaimed as we obey him until he returns. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you.